Hello and welcome to Clinical Chats, a podcast for sexual and reproductive healthcare professionals. Clinical Chats, formerly known as the Family Planning Files, is a program from the Clinical Training Center for Sexual and Reproductive Health, or CTCSRH, formerly known as the National Clinical Training Center for Family Planning, or NCTCFP, and is funded by the Office of Population Affairs in order to enhance the knowledge of Title X clinicians and other staff. In today's podcast, part of the October 2023 Clinician Cafe on Harm Reduction, we'll be discussing harm reduction counseling and women's health with Mishka Turplin, MD, MPH. Dr. Turplin is board certified in both obstetrics and gynecology and in addiction medicine. He is medical director at Friends Research Institute and adjunct faculty at the University of California, San Francisco, where he is also a substance use warmline clinician. Welcome to the podcast, Dr. Turplin. We're so excited to have you today. Well, thank you so much for having me. It's a real pleasure. To begin with, why is substance use harm reduction an important tool in a sexual and reproductive health clinician's toolkit? Maybe we should begin by describing or defining a little bit what harm reduction is, what we mean by that. And really, it's philosophical orientation. It's a practice. It's a way of practicing with people that recognizes a couple of fundamental things. First, it recognizes that most people use drugs, you know, to which some people will develop an addiction. Second, it recognizes that drug use has quote-unquote benefit, hence the motivation to use, but also has harms that can be associated, addiction being only one of the harms of substances. But third, and this third part is oftentimes missed, harm reduction also recognizes that it's not just the drug that can cause harm, but drug policy can have harms. So the goal of harm reduction really centers on the person and the people that we serve, tries to maximize their health in, you know, concrete and rational kinds of ways. And also by minimizing, so we want to not just minimize the harms of substances to a person, but we also want to minimize the harms of punitive, you know, drug policies to people in our clinical care and also in our work as, I would say, you know, public citizens. And because the vast majority of clients in Title X settings are cis women, what factors around substance use are challenges that are unique to that population? So there's a lot of resonance, I think, between how sexual and reproductive health providers approach sexual and reproductive health issues and those principles of harm reduction for men and for women with certain unique things, certainly for women. But, you know, the paradigm of approaching unsafe sex, quote unquote, is similar to the paradigm of approaching, you know, injecting drugs. We don't think people shouldn't have sex the same way we don't, you know, necessarily think people shouldn't ever use drugs. So we approach it through that same kind of rational, humanistic lens that centers on the person. And this resonance, you you see it in some of the language even. 
right? There's a whole movement around, you know, non-evidence-based sexual health education that's grounded in abstinence, that word abstinence. That's actually also oftentimes the language of response to substance use, misuse, and addiction is abstinence. So there's this abstinence, abstinence parallelism in both sexual health world as well as in the substance use, misuse world. And both of those are, you know, the opposite to some extent of harm reduction. They reflect really a moral universe and not a real universe and tend to then make care oppositional, you know, and binary. You know, you should do this or else. Like, why are you doing this thing that you know potentially is harmful? Those are very good ways of driving people, you know, away from healthcare. So there are gendered differences in substance use, misuse, and addiction. And maybe I'll just define those terms real briefly. By use, that should be self-evidence. It means using a drug. Misuse means the prescription that's used not as intended, using a substance in a way that's causing, you know, harm. You know, for example, being intoxicated behind the wheel of a vehicle or something like that. And then use disorder, that's a medical condition, addiction, and that's really a behavioral condition. The primary symptom being, you know, continuing to do something you know is harming yourself and others and being unable to stop doing it. So most people, as I said, in the United States use drugs or have used a drug, you know, in the past year. You know, some people will meet criteria for misuse, but it's actually a minority of people who've used a drug in the past year who meet criteria for a use disorder. It's around 25% of people who've used an opioid, including heroin or fentanyl, will meet criteria for an opioid use disorder. About 20% of people who've used a stimulant, cocaine or methamphetamine, will meet criteria for a stimulant use disorder. And maybe somewhere around 15 to 20% at the most of people who've had a drug of alcohol will meet criteria for an alcohol use disorder. So most people who use drugs don't develop or have a substance use disorder. Now, trajectories into use and the motivations for use do differ by gender. Men tend to initiate substance use a little bit earlier age-wise than women do. However, those that develop a use disorder, women proceed more rapidly from initial use to use disorder than men do, a phenomenon that's called telescoping. That means like that life course of use is collapsed. And when women present for treatment for use disorder, they tend to present with more severe disease. There's also other maybe more specific things that relate to gender inequity and in particular sort of interpersonal power dynamics. For people who inject drugs, for men, the first time they inject, they usually injected themselves. For women, the first time they injected a drug, oftentimes it was a male partner who injected them the first time. And that sort of interdependence of an unequal interdependence, you know, can play out across, you know, the life course of use and use disorder. So there are some, you know, specific differences by gender in terms of use, (laughs) pathways to use, motivations for use, and even effectiveness to some extent of medications for the treatment of addiction that are important, you know, to consider. And now that we've talked about the gender differences between substance misuse and substance use disorder, 
how can harm reduction and the philosophies around harm reduction specifically keep those considerations in mind when applied to women's health? Maybe I'll talk about the drug policy piece of harm reduction here because it's uh, particularly acute. So in general, in the United States, we see bending away from the punitive of drug policy, decriminalization of cannabis and other substances, rolling back a mandatory minimum sentencing, things like this for the last 20 years. But these are state-level policies now. State policies specific to substance use in pregnancy right, have actually become much more punitive. Examples of those would be mandatory reporting to child welfare for substance use or a substance-exposed newborn, classifying you know, um, substance use in pregnancy as child abuse within state statute, or even in five states now, using drugs in pregnancy as being grounds for you know, involuntary civil commitment. The number of states with punitive policies have become more punitive, or have increased in number over the past you know, two decades. And those policies have measurable detrimental harm on the level of the population. We know states that implement these policies, increased rates of preterm birth, increased rates of neonatal abstinence syndrome, and decreased rates of people entering prenatal care and or entering prenatal care later. So it's important to recognize how the drug policy environment might influence or might impact a person, you know, coming for services. In other words, it might generate what I would call legitimate mistrust in disclosure of behaviors, including drug behaviors in the context of clinical care. For women who are mothers, who are caretaking, you know, children, even if they feel like they have a problem, they might be reluctant to share that information with a healthcare provider under, as I said, legitimate concern that that information might travel from the clinical circumstance to a policing surveillance circumstance and that they might lose their kids. So recognizing these dynamics, I think, is part of harm reduction. Second is to create a welcoming environment, in specifically an environment where it's safe for patients to disclose information to us, where we treat as much as we can that information internally and do not share it, do not violate their trust, you know, by oversharing health information. So in some ways, even before the patient shows up, that onus is on the provider, on the clinical system to make care safe or safer and certainly to make it welcoming. And that leads us really well into my next question. As we move into the clinical setting, let's say after, you know, the standard screening as part of the health appointment, a clinician sees a client who states, She's currently using substances, sometimes in ways that put her health and safety at risk, but she's not interested in stopping use of those substances. What are some ways the clinician can discuss harm reduction and give specific harm reduction strategies to this patient? Well, I think one thing is 
we need to establish meaningful therapeutic alliances with the people that we serve. And that is something that sometimes can't be established in minutes and takes time. Trust is a function of time. One tool that's embedded, not just in harm reduction, but in behavioral health interventions more generally, are, you know, the idea of motivational interviewing, which is a bit of a misnomer because it's really motivational listening. (laughs) And it's a way of centering the care on the people that we serve. So one thing, you know, if you've elicited a history of substance use, you know, it's like, what do you like about smoking cigarettes? What don't you like about it? And then you could reflect that back. It seems like you like the fact that it's a break in your day. It's your own time when you're on the porch and it's the one time you have peace. On the other hand, you're worried about, you know, how the secondary smoke exposure might be affecting your infant. And you stop there. And you let them sort of try and reconcile (laughs) that difference. But I think sometimes just acknowledging through asking what do you like about something you're doing displays that you're not approaching this from a strict sort of prohibitionist abstinence, you know, perspective only. And that you're acknowledging that, you know, their behaviors and their person, just like all of us, are complex and can contain contradictions. I think you can also flip the script, you know, from, you know, sort of strict diagnostic intervention kind of interactions to just say, like, do you need help with anything? And what are your goals? Because, again, that falsehood of abstinence sets up really just oftentimes just two goals for people or two options. One is, you know, continuing on the self-destructive path and the other is completely impossible to (laughs) understand at this moment in time. And we know that that's not how like risk, I'm putting that in quotation marks, functions. It's not binary. Uh, And for most substances, we know that cutting back can have measurable benefit. And the magnitude of quitting depends in the context may, may not be quite as apparent as cutting back. In pregnancy, you know, even decreasing cigarette consumption by one, you know, cigarette per day meaningfully reduces the severity and duration of newborn neonatal abstinence syndrome. And so we needn't get to abstinence in order to see an effect. And that goal, the goal, you know, really should be set by the person. And that can be elicited, you know, in that interaction, in that clinical interaction. There is a small role, and I want to say this, but not overstate it. There is a small role for education, for dissemination of information and knowledge. That can be, we can do it as a clinician, or people can get handouts or flyers or things like that. And so it can be important sometimes, you know, to share things such as, you know, heavy alcohol consumption can make your blood pressure medication less effective. And that connection, maybe the patient doesn't know. 
But many things that we think of as, you know, education are really more moral in content and really serve to drive people away from us and undermine, you know, what trust we might have um, developed. So there's a role for education, but that tends to be the lane that we're most comfortable as as providers because that's how we learned. But it's from a behavioral health change perspective education does not lead to behavior change. Again, that leads us well into my next question, that since one of the goals of Title X is to help achieve healthy pregnancies, are there ways to discuss and employ harm reduction for a patient who is desiring pregnancy or test positive for pregnancy, but is also using substances? In general, I think we as providers, but also within the public health world and even within the scientific published literature, do a very bad job differentiating substance use disorder, i.e. addiction, from untreated addiction, from substance use, misuse, and etc., We group everybody together who uses a drug or reports recent drug use and sort of treat them as if they have a use disorder. Now, what should follow in clinical practice, screening, using a validated instrument or having a conversation with a patient to assess recent use type of drug stuff like that, what should follow from that is diagnosis right? Do they meet criteria for substance use disorder or not? Because your intervention, what you do next really differs. If somebody has a use disorder, well, they need treatment. Depends on the type of use disorder, whether or not medications are available, etc. But if they don't have a use disorder, we shouldn't be forcing treatment, which we do. It's like, what does treatment mean for somebody who does not have the condition? It's not helpful (laughs) and it could be harmful. Plus, unfortunately, you know, addiction treatment's a scarce resource. So giving somebody who doesn't need it treatment is taking it away from somebody who does. So it leads to inequitable distribution of scarce healthcare resources. So I think a lot of those things I mentioned before, getting a sense of what people's goals are, what are you worried about in terms of cannabis use in pregnancy? What do you like about it? What are you worried about it? And what are your goals? You know, I I don't want to quit now, but I want to be quit in, you know, like in the third trimester. Okay. How do you want to get to there? Can we set up some intermediate goals along the way? Can I check back in with you about that? If you're having trouble meeting those goals, we'll we'll come up with something else. Um, So I think there's a lot of literally negotiation, you know, that can happen around that. But as long as you sort of set the stage of safety, and that's, again, our responsibility as providers, and be clear, like in pregnancy around, you know, drug testing, what happens to that information, who it gets sent to, how much we can control, not control. Um, I'll just share how I approach it, which is there's things I can control and there's things I can't control. And I think it's important to be clear about that, not overpromise things, not say, if you stay with me in prenatal care, you won't be reported to child welfare. I can't say that that would be false because I can say I won't report you, <laughs> but I can't say you won't be reported. But I can say that my responsibility for care doesn't end at the end of this visit or when you leave this clinic or delivery, that I can pledge a responsibility regardless. So that means if you get reported to child welfare. If, you know, you end up in family court, I can be there. But I can't protect you from this part of the system completely. 
but I can pledge to be there in support of you throughout the process. And I think that type of transparency that's honest, <laughs> you know, don't promise things you can't do and don't and follow through on the things you do say is really helpful in making clinical care safer. It might not be safe like how we would want to see it and how our patients would want to see it, but it's realistic and moves sort of towards there. Another uh, sort of special population, Title X clinicians also often see adolescents for sexual and reproductive health services. Are there specific considerations for clinicians to bear in mind when discussing harm reduction strategies with these younger clients? I want to clarify that I'm not adolescent, you know, specialist. And there are people who both reproductive health and addiction are specialists in this population. And it's a population that really deserves specialty care because there are unique considerations. I think uh, one theme that I didn't mention before in your earlier questions, but I think bears in general and in particular on this, is the interrelationship between sexual behaviors and drug behaviors from a simplistic perspective of risk-taking and also of risk, you know, um, not just, you know, sex, but, you know, sex while intoxicated is different. And that's something that's also common amongst adolescents, youth, you know, and young adults. So sort of teasing out or being sensitive or aware of the possibility of the sort of intersections, you know, between these sorts of things. You know, the second is, is that in our culture and in this historical period of time, you know, drug use and what's sometimes called experimentation is normal. And normally what part of adolescence and the transition to adulthood and yet not everyone has the same vulnerabilities like to uh, the development of use disorders. And that can be something that's hard, especially for youth who develop a use disorder or have, you know, like much greater misuse in their contemporaries. That can be hard for them to understand and teasing out sort of like a reflecting back those vulnerabilities. And those vulnerabilities would include, you know, a family history of substance use disorder you know, history of, you know, adverse childhood experiences. To some extent, age of first use is correlated to um, development of a use disorder. And trying to sort of set that, you know, one, accepting the normalcy of use and quote-unquote experimentation. But second, you know, trying to individualize it. You know, you having <laughs> three drinks is not the same as everybody else in your peer group having three drinks um, because you have a greater set of vulnerabilities. And that can be, you know, it's a good piece of information, I think, for that person to have. And you know, you can think about moderating sort of behaviors, but the same principles of sort of safety and disclosure. And yes, there's some issues in terms of age and what, you know, you could share and not share, but being familiar with that and respecting that. And again, not promising things you can't deliver and following through on the things you do pledge. I'd like to change tack a little bit and talk specifically about substances themselves. While there's a lot of discussion around things like opioid or alcohol, I'd like to take a moment to discuss specifically cannabis because it's becoming legal to use either medicinally or recreationally in more states every single year. What do we know specifically about cannabis use and misuse and harm reduction as related to this increased legalization? 
cannabis is endlessly fascinating. And in particular, at this historical moment. So it remains illegal, scheduled substance without any medicinal value in federal classification. Many states have, there's medical cannabis and many more over time where it's legal. This sets up, like just in terms of drug policy, a kind of cognitive dissonance from drug policy, also a particular risk that becomes gendered certainly around reproduction and pregnancy and and parenting. I find it helpful to have a bit of a historical lens on this. So cannabis and cannabinoids, plant-derived cannabinoids, were part of every single cultures like pharmacopoeia, those that developed pharmacopoeias, written, you know, documentation of medicines. And in the Victorian era, and before then, but certainly in the Victorian era, cannabinoids were available in primarily in tincture forms and sold, marketed and sold predominantly to women for the treatment of, you know, female conditions such as, you know, menstrual pain, menstrual irregularities, and might be (laughs) some specific medical benefits of cannabinoids related to women's health. And there certainly are, you know, cannabinoids have a strong, you know, therapeutic potential, some of which have been studied more than others, both in conditions and in types of cannabinoids. Most of that is not exactly what we call medicine. It's still kind of plant-based care. I'm not trying to minimize its therapeutic effectiveness, but I want to mark a distinction between sort of 20th century state-controlled, bureaucratic, and pharmacologically specific medications development and regulation and plant-based medicines, which are what most of human history had. And so that's also a cognitive dissonance, this world of, you know, the effectiveness of, you know, smoking a plant and or ingesting it otherwise or specific compounds it doesn't align exactly with, you know, FDA randomized controlled trials and, you know, regulatory environments and, and designations. Doesn't mean there's not benefit. There could be that women actually historically certainly might have benefits from some of these sorts of things. At the same time, it's illegal federally. And if you're using it while pregnant or parenting, it, you know, that information might be shared with policing agencies, including, you know, child welfare. So it's super, super messy, which means, again, like that kind of harm reduction principle, the same questions around, you know, what do you like about it? What don't you like about it? You can apply those not just to things like cigarettes or alcohol. You can also apply that to sort of to cannabis, even cannabis that's used for self-reported medical conditions. How is it working? I use cannabis because it helps me sleep. Okay, tell me, what do you like about it? What don't you like about it? How is it working? And, you know, are there alternatives or are there things we can do at the same time that might improve the quality of your sleep? So those kinds of considerations, I think, apply... That harm reduction lens is not just for drugs that are illegal (laughs) or drugs that have harms, um, but also for things that people are using in medicinal ways. 
Sort of related, you talked about how we don't know sort of that randomized control trial evidence base FDA approval for cannabis, but what do we know about specifically how cannabis can affect women's sexual and reproductive health and pregnancy? And what can clinicians tell their patients if they ask about it, if they're providing that harm reduction counseling? I think it's real important to acknowledge what we know and don't know, and to also recognize that all of us have been socialized in a particular drug policy. And in many ways, we've internalized a prohibitionist logic around substances. And that can come out in our clinical care, how we react to someone's drug test, what we recommend, etc. We have to, in, a, in many ways, at least recognize, if not try to, you know, decriminalize literally, you know, our brains. I honestly don't know the answers to this question. And I know that there are people who know more than I do. I will say that when we talk about cannabis, we tend to be talking about external exogenous cannabinoids. There's a whole internal like endocannabinoid system. Almost every single part of the human body has, you know, cannabinoid receptors, and they're particularly concentrated within the female reproductive tract. And there are models of both endo and exocannabinoids, animal models related to miscarriage how the cilia and the fallopian tubes respond to endocannabinoids. The may or may not be something about ovulation, certainly about implantation and things like that. There's endocannabinoid mediation, you know, in all of that. I know a touch more than what I just said, but not that much more. But there's a relationship. Exactly how that translates into human health, I don't know. Now, in pregnancy, the concern is that you have an endogenous system and then you've got exogenous, uh, you know, similar substance. And does that change? Does it override? Does it, you know, cause problems? The same questions, you know, have historically been asked about opioids. We have, you know, endogenous opioid system and, you know, people who use opioids for whatever reason, you know, it's an exogenous opioid on the, you know, developing embryo and fetus. But generally speaking, we overstate what that means. And that's a reflection of that internalization of drug policy, I would argue. We overstate, you know, like the quote-unquote risks or the consequences of cannabinoid exposure. What do we know at this point in time? And this is where I know more than about the sexual and reproductive health question part of the cannabis. There appears to be an association between use of cannabis in pregnancy and lower birth weight, somewhere between 30 to 100 gram differences. There seems to be an association, and that's confirmed across multiple studies and seen in systematic reviews. And same with an association between cannabis exposure and admission to a neonatal intensive care unit. These studies vary a little bit in quality and certainly don't always measure or completely measure nicotine and or tobacco, which is known to like reduce birth weight. Nor do they, you know, as you move away from nicotine, the other potential confounders are less and less measured too. But let's just assume that that is a real association. The significance, uncertain. And then as you move along in terms of development, You know, one thing that health professionals say that is, I think, false is that we don't know a lot about cannabis and child development. 
And it's false. Like we actually know a lot. The problem is we can't summarize it quickly. And certainly we can't summarize it quickly in a negative way. Like I can say for alcohol is the leading cause of preventable intellectual disability in the United States in utero alcohol exposure. I can't make that kind of a sentence for cannabis because the data are mixed at best. Effects are subtle when they exist at all. And what gets measured is rarely like well controlled for it. It does not well control for the caregiving environment. The further we move from birth, the less of an effect we see. There are four large cohorts of, you know, cannabis exposed, what had been cannabis exposed, you know, pregnancies now are children, young adults, and even adults. And cannabis does not cause birth defects. It's unclear at best and minimal or absent effects, like probably more commonly. And the thing to keep in mind in this whole space too is like the organ we are concerned of when we're talking about in utero chemical exposures, the organ we're concerned of the fetus is the brain, but the brain doesn't stop developing at birth. There's actually nothing unique that happens to the human brain at birth. The big change that happens in the brain happens around age, you know, 25 or 26. That's where, you know, the brain finally, quote, matures and shifts in development. And so exposures can happen across, not just in utero, but throughout, you know, infancy, childhood, and adolescence. And probably those exposures are more important for cannabis on development and stuff like that than the in-utero exposure was. So we have to think about, you know, second and third hand exposure in children. And we have to think about, you know, exposure through primary use, you know, in youth and adolescence. Well, this has been a great discussion, but obviously there's so much more out there to learn. Where can clinicians go to learn more about harm reduction, counseling and harm reduction principles, or where can they refer their clients to learn more about implementing harm reduction? In this work in general, it's super important to include and support people with, you know, quote unquote, lived experience. And I can share a certain perspective. I can speak from, you know, a specific kind of authority, but it's not the primary one or the only one. And generally speaking, I think the care we provide is enriched when we include the people that we serve in decision-making and in the care itself. And that means not just tokenism. That means legitimately like bringing people to the table, reimbursing them and supporting what they say and working, you know, closely in partnership with them, individuals, but also various community-based organizations. So there's a ton of community-based organizations, including things such as syringe, you know, exchange services, as well as reproductive justice organizations that include people who've been, you know, impacted by um, substance use, but also I think it's important to include people who've been impacted by drug policy. And that perspective, to a large extent, the harms of illegal substances are the fact that they're illegal. That's what confers the greatest risk, not the substance itself. That's true of the fetus. That's true of, you know, the pregnant person. And, you know, generally speaking, that's true across the board. So I would suggest, you know, providers getting to know their community and looking for community-based resources that can both help all of us, you know, along the path of, you know, self-discovery and learning, but also like as resources for the clients that we serve. 
there are national organizations, Harm Reduction Coalition, there's the National Academy of Perinatal Harm Reduction, there's Drug Policy Alliance, there's in the child welfare space, Movement for Family Power, JMAC for Families, and a host of other, you know, great organizations run by awesome people, many of which have resources, you know, for free on their websites. And then, you know, the final thing, I think it's helpful for providers to have some training and certainly practice in those motivational interviewing techniques that I discussed earlier. And before we go, one final question. What would be your top takeaway or takeaways for our listeners? The one thing you really want them to remember as they return to their practices and go forward. At its core, harm reduction is an expression of humanism, not just medical humanism, but humanism. And, and really, it means treating people with dignity and respect. And for people who use drugs, in particular, sometimes women who use drugs, and certainly pregnant people and parents who use drugs, they are denied that dignity. They're denied that humanity in medical encounters um, through the articulation of drug policies, and specifically drug policies related to pregnancy. And that means we actually have a responsibility to address those inequities that are, as I mentioned, both individual as well as structural. And one of the ways that we do that is, you know, by reflecting people's, you know, humanity back to them and sometimes even, you know, giving them the dignity that has been denied them elsewhere. And we do that by creating environments that are welcoming, that are safer. We do that, you know, by providing, you know, services that center on the people that we serve. We do that by including people who are impacted, you know, within the decision-making process and the delivery of healthcare services. And we do that beyond the clinic, too. And that's part of sort of the public citizenship of healthcare. That can mean different things at different times for different people. But this work is really more than health. It's more than wellness. It's more than drugs. It's more than sex. You know, it's about like, what is the horizon? You know, what is the universe we would like to inhabit? And how can we get to there? Well, thank you so much for joining us today, Dr. Turplin, and for sharing your time and expertise with our listeners. For previous podcast episodes, search for Clinical Chats or subscribe to our show on iTunes, Google Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. For transcript of this podcast, as well as other online learning activities and continuing education opportunities, please visit our website at www.ctcsrh.org. While you're there, you can sign up to receive our newsletter, Clinical Connections, at the top of the page. You can also follow the Clinical Training Center for Sexual and Reproductive Health on Twitter at CTCSRH, all lowercase, and on LinkedIn. The CTCSRH is funded by the Office of Population Affairs to provide continuing education, training, and technical assistance to Title X grantees, subrecipients, and service sites, and is supported by DHHS Grant Number 5, FPTPA 0060310. This podcast is intended for informational purposes only and does not constitute legal or medical advice or endorsement of specific products. 
Opinions expressed herein are the views of the contributors, do not necessarily reflect the official positions of the Department of Health and Human Services, or DHHS, Office of the Assistant Secretary of Health, or OASH, or the Office of Population Affairs, or OPA. No official support or endorsement by DHHS, OASH, and or OPA is intended or should be inferred. Theme music written by Dan Jones and performed by Dan Jones and the Squids. Other production support provided by the Collaborative to Advance Health Services at the University of Missouri-Kansas City School of Nursing and Health Studies. And finally, thank you to our listeners for tuning in today. We hope that you'll join us next time for another episode of Clinical Chats.